0: WAR AND PEACE by Leo Tolstoy. Translated by Aylmer and Louise Maud. First Epilogue. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Villavon WAR AND PEACE by Leo Tolstoy. First Epilogue. Chapter 1. Seven years had passed. The storm-tossed sea of European history had subsided within its shores and seemed to have become calm. But the mysterious forces that move humanity, mysterious because the laws of their motion are unknown to us, continued to operate. Though the surface of the sea of history seemed motionless, the movement of humanity went on as unceasingly as the flow of time. Various groups of people formed and dissolved, the coming formation and dissolution of kingdoms, and displacement of people was in course of preparation. The sea of history was not driven spasmodically from one shore to shore as previously. It was seething in its depths. Historic figures were not borne by the waves from one shore to another as before. They now seemed to rotate on one spot. The historical figures at the head of armies, who formerly reflected the movement of the masses by ordering wars, campaigns, and battles, now reflected the restless movements by political and diplomatic combinations, laws, and treaties. The historians call this activity of the historical figures, the Reaction. In dealing with this period, they sternly condemn the historical personages who, in their opinion, cause what they describe as the reaction all the well-known people of that period from alexander and napoleon to the madame de stalle fortius Schelling, fichte chateaubriand and the rest passed before their stern judgment seat and are acquitted or condemned according to whether they conduce to progress or to reaction according to their accounts a reaction took place at that time in Russia also, and the chief culprit was Alexander I, same man who, according to them, was the chief cause of the liberal movement at the commencement of his reign, being the savior of Russia. There is no one in Russian literature now, from schoolboy essayist, to learned historian, who does not throw his little stone at Alexander for things he did wrong at this period of his reign he ought to have acted in this way and in that way in this case he did well and in that case badly he behaved admirably at the beginning of his reign and during eighteen twelve but acted badly by giving a constitution to poland forming the holy alliance entrusting power to Arakshev, favoring golitsyn and mysticism and afterwards chishkov and fortius he also acted badly by concerning himself with the active army and disbanding the Seminole Regiment. It would take a dozen pages to enumerate all the reproaches the historians addressed to him based on their knowledge of what is good for humanity. What do these reproaches mean? Do not the very actions for which the historians praised Alexander I, the liberal attempts at the beginning of his reign, his struggle with Napoleon, the firmness he displayed in 1812, and the campaign of 1813, Flow from the same sources the circumstances of his birth education and life that made his personality what it was and from which the actions for which they blame him the holy alliance the restoration of poland and the reaction of eighteen twenty and later also flowed and what does the substance of these reproaches lie it lies in the fact that an historic character like alexander the first standing on the highest possible pinnacle of human power with the blinding light of history focused upon him a character exposed to the strongest of all influences the intrigues flattery and self-deception inseparable from power a character who at every moment of his life felt a responsibility for all that was happening in europe and not a fictitious but alive character who like every man had his personal habits passions and impulses toward goodness beauty and truth that this character though not lacking in virtue the historians do not accuse him of that had not the same conception of the welfare of humanity fifty years ago as a present-day professor who from his youth upwards has been occupied with learning that is with books and lectures and with taking notes from them but even if we assume that fifteen years ago alexander i was mistaken in his view of what was good for the people we must inevitably assume that the historian who judges alexander will also after the lapse of some time turn out to be mistaken in his view of what is good for humanity this assumption is all the more natural and inevitable because watching the movement of history we see that every year and with each new writer opinion as to what is good for mankind changes so that what once seemed good ten years later seems bad and vice versa and what is more we find at one and the same time quite contradictory views as to what is bad and what is good in history some people regard giving a constitution to poland and forming the holy alliance as praiseworthy in alexander while others regard it as blameworthy the activity of alexander or of napoleon cannot be called useful or harmful for it is impossible to say for what it was useful or harmful if that activity displeases somebody This is only because it does not agree with his limited understanding of what is good. Whether the preservation of my father's house in Moscow, or the glory of the Russian arms, or the prosperity of the Petersburg and other universities, or the freedom of Poland, or the greatness of Russia, or the balance of power in Europe, or a certain kind of European culture called progress, appear to me to be good or bad, I must admit that besides these things, the action of every historic character has other more general purposes, inaccessible to me. But let us assume that what is called science can harmonize all contradictions, and possesses an unchanging standard of good and bad, I wish to try historic characters and events. Let us say that Alexander could have done everything differently. Let us say that, with guidance from those who blame him, and who profess to know the ultimate aim of the movement of humanity, He might have arranged matters according to the program his present accusers would have given him, of nationality, freedom, equality, and progress. These, I think, cover the ground. Let us assume that this program was possible, and had then been formulated, and that Alexander had acted on it. What would then have become of the activity of all those who opposed the tendency that then prevailed in the government, an activity that, in the opinion of the historians, was good and beneficent? Their activity would not have existed. There would have been no life. There would have been nothing. If we admit that human life can be ruled by reason, the possibility of life is destroyed. End of chapter 1